Nature Works podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. Welcome to NatureWorks Podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sal Montgomery, who's a world-class professional adventure kayaker, TV presenter, and endurance athlete. In this episode, we discuss adventures in Bhutan, Kamchatka, which is in Russia, if you didn't know, and how Sal saved the life of the famous TV presenter, Steve Brackshaw, when his kayak got stuck in an eddy, far, far from any chance of rescue. Sal has featured as one of the Royal Geographical Society's most inspiring people and currently she spends her time between the UK and Ecuador where she teaches kids to paddle on their local rivers as a way to inspire a better understanding of natural systems. If you're into adventure sports, wild places, grizzly bears and protecting nature then this episode is for you. If you enjoy this episode and others, please share with other folks who are like-minded and give a crap about the natural world. This podcast is free of sponsors or advertising, and we aim at all times to provide honest and unbiased insights into how we can help protect, restore, and for goodness sake, we have to do this now before it's too late. Regenerate the natural world. Is there natural sunlight today, or is it a gloomy British day? No, it's, it's trying. It's getting there. Good. You've had a bit of a heat wave, haven't you, recently? So I don't feel too bad for you because we've had a we've had a uh, a mini monsoon season when it's meant to be summer here in Bali, which is. Oh, been... you're in Bali. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I live uh, in Bali. I was in Canada for most of summer, uh, so I missed the UK heat wave, but it was pretty hot in Canada, to be honest. Yeah, you had a you had a heat wave over there as well, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> it's gone. It the certainly world... felt like it. The world's gone mad. Um, yeah. Where are you? You're in Nottingham. Yes, yeah, I'm in Nottingham at the moment. Um, that's where I'm from originally. Not much kayaking in Nottingham, is there? Uh, just a man-made white water course. So that's why I tend to train. But um, yes, not not much in the way of white water. Otherwise, there's um, uh, in the Peak District, isn't there? Uh, near what's it called? The big limestone wall, uh, and also uh, where they make the uh, Mr. Kipling's uh, cakes. Bakewell, that's right. Isn't Bakewell, there some yeah. kayak, isn't there some kayaking around there at certain times of the year? That's not uh, too far from you. No, is there not? It's you pretty can... chill. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Of course, that's a good point. Yeah, there's kayaking, but not your sort of kayaking, right? There is, there is some kayaking, but um... <laughs> yeah. All right. You can you you can tell me you can you can absolutely say when no, that's not real kayaking. That's called floating down a river on a leisurely Sunday afternoon. I'm sure it's lovely. <laughs> So look, I've I've done a bit of kayaking in my time, and um, hey, cool. uh, when I was uh, when I was a kid, I used to be a member of a boys' club. I grew up in a very poor area, and we were lucky enough to have one of these boys' clubs locally that took mm-hmm. us away on trips. Mm-hmm. And I um, and we had uh, some of the the original piranha kayaks, the first ones, plastic hey, cool. ones. Mm. Yeah. And so so we'd go we'd go uh, kayaking. I was about eight years old on this river in uh, a place in Saltford. You know Saltford outside of Bristol. Do you know the area at all? Um, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't matter anyway? It's a big. It's the. I think it's the River Avon, and so they had a weir there, five foot, you know. And we would go over mm-hmm. the weir, and we would go off the side of the um of the the weir wall, and so I assumed that I was an expert in kayaking, and then some <laughs> many years later, when I was in North Wales, 
with some mm-hmm. friends of mine who were kayakers but rock climbers because I used to be a, a professional rock climber. And so I was in North oh, Wales yeah. on a climbing trip and my mate said, do you want to come kayaking? I said, yeah, I haven't kayaked since I was like nine years old, but I'm really good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we go to this river in somewhere out of Clamberis, somewhere in that kind of region. Actually, it wasn't Clamberis. Anyway, it was, you know, it's in the, in the, in, and it was, and it'd been raining really heavily, which is why we were going kayaking, not climbing. Yeah. And so I remember walking down to this river thinking, wow, this looks a bit tastier than when I was nine years old or it's eight years old in Salford <laughs> on, the, on the River Avon going over a weir. And um, my friends gave me the instructions. They said, you know, it's like five, four, four mile stretch or something. There's grade three, grade four. There's this, there's that. And I, and I didn't know what the hell they were talking about, obviously. I got in this thing about, I reckon I made it 50 foot until oh, I no. tried turning to avoid a pool i went oh no i didn't go over i grabbed a tree for a second a tree branch yeah i grabbed a tree branch trying to reorient myself and then of course not realizing that that's the worst thing you can possibly do because it turned the kayak so i capsized not Mm -hmm. realizing that there was pretty much nowhere out for the next two miles so i swam this entire river (laughs) (laughs) chasing this kayak the whole way and um Sounds like and, a great day. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you my friends dined out on it for about six months afterwards in every pub oh, conversation. Oh, there are, there, well, at least there you didn't after. get hurt or anything. <laughs> I, did not, I did not get hurt. And then some years ago, and uh, uh, sorry, some years later, I went to New Zealand to make a TV series called Adrenaline Junkie with um, Jack mm-hmm. Osborne. And um, we were going over this 25-foot waterfall. Um, was the, it on the Titanic in Rotorua? Yes, it was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Totally and it's, right. a com- it's commercial, isn't it? People go over it in rafts and stuff, but it's a mm-hmm. big. And um, mm-hmm. luckily for me, the day beforehand, I dislocated my shoulder completely Ooh. in the in the rapids. And my wife went over. She's I've my wife in 21 years of being together. I've never seen her cry more oh. than maybe a handful of times. Kayaking, she was crying pretty much every 30 minutes. Um, oh. So I say all of that as framing for the audience, for the listeners. (laughs) Well, no, I I say all of that because um, it it hopefully frames the fact of how much admiration I have for uh, people like yourself who are world-class kayakers. Because for most people, because it is a niche sport, and for most people, they don't understand just how difficult it is. It looks like you're just sat in a nice little plastic boat and going down the river. I got to, before we go into the deep into the questions with you, I got to say kayaking for me is one of the most difficult and also one of the most um, scary sports I've ever undertaken. And I've tried them all and I've been relatively decent at some of them. So <laughs> my admiration for kayakers could, uh, has no bounds. Uh, oh, uh, I'm just going to put that out there. I do there. have a, a friend who's dabbled in a little bit of kayaking, but is mainly a climber uh, and mountaineer. And he describes kayaking as trying to um, ski slalom whilst there's an avalanche. That's yeah, that's, how he describes yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, that's my experience. Whilst in your own plastic coffin. <laughs> which, which it's a great sport it's a lot of fun uh, I, but it, it can get um a bit gnarlier uh, so how, as you can. 
push the limits a bit more. <laughs> so how do you become a, a, a pro kayaker? Because um, I'll, I'll give an introduction to you. Um, I do those separately at the beginning of uh, each one of these mm-hmm. podcasts. And I've spent the last hour watching videos of you going over massive waterfalls and saving <laughs> celebrities from drowning oh. and doing first ascents through uh, Bhutan and all these different places that I'm going to ask you questions about. Um, but how do you become a professional kayaker? It's not, it's not um, an obvious career choice. Yeah, and to be honest, it wasn't something that I thought I would ever be able to do. Um, I say I learned uh, the first time in a kayak was as a scout, and that was just in big old plastic boat full of holes, sat on a lake in the rain at, at scout camp. Um, loved it, but didn't know that that was something you could go and do. Then later discovered that not only can you do it as an adult and not as a scout a scout camp, uh, there's also this whole world of whitewater. Um, so I learned to kayak at Nottingham Home Pier Pond Whitewater Course. Um, and to be honest, it never occurred to me that I might be able to do it professionally. I just fell in love with it, uh, kind of made my whole life about it and just wanted to keep pushing and challenging myself and seeing new places. Um, until I found that I was doing it all the time and suddenly kind of it, it really was my life and a big part of my kind of, um, I don't know if career is the right word because it doesn't always feel like work, but yeah, just it's like the main direction of my life and kind of what I'm passionate about and what's got me to where I am today, really. And the uh, the the career part of it, obviously people always wonder when you talk about professional athletes, because I've been asked about it a lot with climbing. Mm-hmm. I was a pro climber when you know, 5,000 pounds in my back pocket would keep me on the road for a year, living out of the back of uh, beat up old cars and in, ca- and, yeah. and in remote campsites. And, and actually, I don't mind admitting it, as a, a proud dirtbag, I used to do dumpster diving on a, yeah. on a, on a Friday <laughs> in Australia when I lived there for a year. Um, yeah. because I know that's a very popular uh, gro- t- way of grocery shopping in Norway for a lot of kayakers. <laughs> oh, is it? Is it? Yeah, yeah. I bet in Norway everything's fr- thrown out like three days later or something. They're so sensitive to. Yeah, it's that. just so like the white water in Norway is incredible, uh, but obviously lots of kayakers are, are like you say, kind of trying to do it the dirt bag style and spend as little as possible. So a lot of them are doing dumpster diving. Um, <laughs> so I, it's I, not something I tend to do, but it's it's quite known amongst kayakers and general outdoorsy types in Norway. I I kind of have I have two two sons, a ten year old and a seven year old. And um, they are adventurous to a point. They like to go on climbing trips. They like to go on skiing trips. They One of them surfs. They both do jujitsu. So they're very active. But mm-hmm. but um, I have a... I mean, they're quite... They're, without putting too fine a point on it, they're privileged. No, dad does well. We have a, we have a nice home. They're never going to have to... Um, they're never going to have to think about whether there's food on the table. But mm-hmm. I am desperately hoping that when they hit their late teens that they go they find a sport that is almost impossible to make money from that they fall <laughs> in love with and, and that they that they go and they have to live out of dumpsters you yeah know? it's definitely uh character building <laughs> it's it's character building so you obviously you look you look far too healthy to be eaten out of dumpsters and your uh, <laughs> and your background if that's your home looks um looks uh, uh i'm actually uh, not at my home i'm at my oh, you're not. house uh, okay. All right. Well, I won't comment on your friend's home then. But um, but as a professional kayaker, you get—is it a sponsorship 
piece that you're sponsored yeah. to yeah. by brands. Um, I've got yeah. sponsors, and then obviously um, I've been working in TV for a few years now, um, and I, I tend to work on the river as well. So it's a combination of things, really. Um, but yeah, predominantly I'm sponsored kayaker. And and I mean, you're, it's a dream, isn't it? You've got you're doing what you absolutely love in a sport passion, and then also getting to do that on TV. But, yeah. But there's an environmental or ecological aspect to the TV side. Yeah, and that's another. That's part of why I love it as well. Because uh, you might have seen some of the videos with, with a chap called uh, Steve Backshall, who's uh, a pretty well-known um, wildlife and nature presenter here in the UK and much of the world, I believe. Um, and the thing I've loved about my expeditions with Steve is obviously you've got the excitement and the adrenaline and the adventure. We're in these unexplored remote places and there's that responsibility to get the team down the river safely. But also, as well as the adventure side of it, we're there for an environmental reason as well. We're there to kind of not only document the wildlife and these incredible places, but also kind of what is potentially threatening these areas and, and what we can do and, and just trying to highlight um, these incredible places and like magnificent wildlife and things, but also what we're potentially doing to damage that and cause, cause problems to it. And that's something I really enjoy about working with Steve is um, you have the adventure and the excitement, but also I'm constantly learning. I'm learning from him um, and yeah, it's kind of broadening my knowledge as well. And then that's something I can take away and try and do the best I can do with that and share it to others and, and hopefully do some good out of it. Um, and yeah, just add more purpose to what we're doing. And the trip you, uh, you're you referring to, because uh, I've seen one and that's in Kamchatka, isn't it, in Russia? Yeah, Kamchatka, um, that's in Russia. And then the one before that was in Bhutan. Yeah. Um, that was... Um, back in 2018 i think that one and kayaking aside which we can go back into in a minute but what was the so what was the focus from a conservation or environmental purpose what were you, what animals were you tracking or uh, so what environmental kamchatka we were predominantly documenting the grizzly bears um so we purposely went at that particular time of year because that was salmon spawning season uh, which typically brings all the bears to the river to feed um, it's also a very particular type of salmon um, that come back to this river. Um, but we wanted to be there to document the grizzly bears um, and their and this this area, this location, their habitat, which has been completely unspoiled by humans. We've not kind of gone in there and started building on it yet or anything. And they are just there doing their thing, absolutely thriving. Um, and just seeing that environment in general, kind of obviously every level kind of the ecosystem going on there, um, just seeing it completely undisturbed and at its best and healthiest um, and just documenting that really. And uh, as well as the grizzly bears, there was lots of other animals as well, obviously, but that's what we were there predominantly documenting. And did you, so you saw a number of grizzly bears, I take mm, it? Yes, yeah, lots. <laughs> well, was that, was it, was, because I've seen, um footage of a wildlife cameraman i wish i knew his name will come to me but it's a famous nat geo photographer and cameraman and he's in um kamchatka and he's sat on a riverside and there must be 50 grizzlies behind him just wandering mm -hmm. around and yeah. one of them comes so close and 
and as a wildlife photographer he's obviously trying not to disturb the wildlife but there's a there's a a comment and i i haven't seen this this was a year or two ago that i saw the actual footage i think it was on instagram and he's talking about how the bears don't fear humans in the region because they've got nothing to fear they're so well protected and it's such as you rightly say it's such a sort of pristine wilderness but did you have any close encounters with grizzlies because then you know yeah. not to be trifled with I, I would agree what he said but i also think particularly where we were um they hadn't learned to fear humans yet because um obviously they they didn't know as they hadn't encountered humans before they didn't know that we could be a threat so it was kind of funny and maybe i imagined this but to me it felt like every time i kind of made eye contact with one it felt like there was that moment of it like looking at me and thinking what are you <laughs> <laughs> i've never seen anything that looks like you before especially because we're in these brightly colored um kayaks as well just floating by and obviously we're trying to disturb as little as possible um and you could see and it, as, as i say maybe i was imagining it but it just felt like they were looking at us thinking i don't know what to do with you uh and there'd be that pause and then they'd run away but that's how it felt anyway that um they just weren't familiar with what we were were and what we were doing there and then we were gone again in a few seconds and it was like we were never there so yeah it was really interesting it, and kamchatka i think i'm right in saying is northeast um russia is it or it's on the eastern uh, side yes yeah, on the very far east and you've got the peninsula which they say is fish shaped i can't yeah. quite see it but uh, it's like a long fish and we were right at the bottom of that fish ah, okay like fish's okay. tail kind of thing because when you look at Russia on the map, it's like the largest landmass of a, of a, of any country on mm. the planet. It's just incredible. It's huge, yeah. It's it's so huge, and it's um and it's in many places so wild and still so pristine. I mean, it has every kind of wildlife. Um, and had had it not been um a political a political ruination of Mr. Putin's um current PR. You know, he actually was very supportive, or is very supportive, of a lot of the of the protection of those regions. And I and I and I know that Kamchatka is one of those reasons that uh, sorry, one of those regions that are is heavily protected. Um, I haven't been into a sort of pristine, untouched wilderness for a very, very long time. I live here in Bali, where um, you know it's four point two million people on a small island, and everything is farmed about about half of the land mass is is farmed because you've got a population to support and everyone's rice farming and it's a, you know very yeah and it's a very low um uh, you know the monthly median monthly wage across indonesia is about 180 dollars so mm. rice subsidizes people's lives here heavily and and the like yeah. so it's you know there's not much wildlife in the in the farmed area so i've sort of you end up forgetting that there are these pristine places on the planet yeah. But you've been to Bhutan, which is the equivalent, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty much untouched, unspoilt. Yeah. And, and I, to be honest, before Kamchatka, I thought I'd been to a lot of very remote places, but Kamchatka was just completely out there. That was like nothing I've known before. And you really are in the absolute middle of wilderness. And if anything happens, no one's coming to help you. There's there's no way out. It's just you and your team. And I I thought I'd experienced that in lots of places before, but really nowhere was like Kamchatka. Um, and what you were saying about it, it being protected, I think mostly, yes. Um, whilst we were there, we were being told of potential plans for the future for 
introducing tourism in certain areas and things and obviously that could have quite a devastating effect on those areas um again i don't know how valid a lot of it was but we were hearing quite a few stories of potential plans and things so i hope that they aren't real and are not materialized um, and Bhutan, again was such an incredible place but so different uh, i don't know how much you know about bhutan but um there's a, a very strong buddhism culture there um and you just felt kind of the people we were meeting and the areas we were visiting and things, you could feel the pride where people really cared about their wilderness and wanted to protect it and wanted to protect the animals. Uh, and obviously a lot of that comes from kind of Buddhism culture. Um, but that was really lovely to see is just that pride and wanting just everyone you met wanted to protect the areas and protect the wildlife and the animals. Uh, and that was really lovely to see. Um, and definitely got me thinking about quite a few different things and I from Bhutan I went back to Nepal and and kind of saw the contrast there between the two countries and yeah made it like a really obvious um contrast there I think Bhutan's one of the countries that gives rights to the natural world in on a similar mm. level to to humans and I know yeah. that, that I know yeah. they've had an increase in their tiger populations because they've actually created these um, green corridors, cor corridors haven't they, all yeah. over. Mm -hmm. And they've tracked yeah. tigers from Bhutan to, and to India because they've they've collared them. And seeing how far they, they range when they're given the opportunity to go across yeah. land in heavily forested areas. Yeah, uh, a, a huge percentage of Bhutan is protected forest land. Um, and as you say, they've introduced these, or not introduced as such, but they've protected... Uh, these wilderness um, corridors to allow free migration and movement and things. And even on just our short time there, um, although we didn't see tigers, uh, they're pretty good at hiding, we did see um, signs of them. We'd get out to scout a, a rapid or to set up camp and we'd see tiger tracks. I uh, would see um, obviously their scat, their footprints. Uh, one night, even uh, we woke up the next morning and found a tiger kill. Uh, not too far from our tents and things. So there was definitely lots of signs of them around. Um, they just did a good job of hiding from us. <laughs> what What was the kill? I think it was a deer. Mm. Yeah, yeah it was, nice. I think you... Steve said it looked like it was about two days old, so it wasn't too too long before we uh, set up our camp. <laughs> and you, you didn't fancy having some venison on the side to... to uh, no, well, I'm a vegetarian, <laughs> but oh, I didn't okay. appealing, to be honest. <laughs> But uh, so uh, on that note of of mealtime, how do you end up preparing for these expeditions into the unknown? Because they, you, you have to do an enormous amount of of planning based on what you do know, but you also have to expect what you don't know. And I, I saw there's a whole bunch of interviews with you about having saved Steve in a um, in an accident where he's caught in a pool. And um, and I'm sure you're bored, senseless of talking about that. But you were obviously you're so well trained and rapid in the response. But um, that's one example of the kind of thing that you're going to face on these potentially on these expeditions. But how, how much planning goes into a, a proper wilderness expedition like Kamchatka or Bhutan? Um, obviously, there's a lot of different elements to it because um, you've got the actual kayaking, uh, which obviously is hugely important. You need to be as skilled as possible, um, as, as well as strong and fit and have the endurance to last a whole day. 
for multiple days and have the skill to negotiate those rapids. Um, and then you've also got the safety and rescue skills. So um, I try and do pretty regular training. Um, I go on kind of annual courses as well as kind of do my own training just wherever I am, uh, just to try and keep it nice and fresh. Because obviously when you need to carry out those skills, it's usually because something's gone wrong and you need to react as quickly as possible. And sometimes you've only got one chance. So when Steve was caught in that hydraulic, um, I had what we call a throw bag, which is like a bag of rope. Um, and you have one chance. Once you've thrown it, if, if you miss, then by the time you've coiled it all back in, repacked it, thrown again, it could be too late. Um, so I, I'm hugely thankful that it, it did work out. Um, it could have gone the other way. And, and I'm so, so glad every day I'm... I'm pleased that it went the way it did um but you've always got to be ready for those situations um and for Kamchatka for instance um we because of obviously the pandemic and things that actually meant that quite a bit of Steve's work in the lead up to it was cancelled or postponed which meant that we had more time to prepare um so I actually moved in for a period of time uh, during the pandemic and we just trained every day we trained on the water, off the water, safety and rescue. Um, when we were allowed to, we we went to rivers, we did safety and rescue training, we did kayak training, and we just did as much as possible. Um, and to start with, I know Steve was kind of saying, well, why do I need to practice throwing a rope and doing this? If anyone's going to have problems, you're, you're going to be rescuing me, not the other way around. And as I said, like we're a team. We all need to look out for each other. I could get into difficulty as easily as Steve does, even something as simple as slipping into the river. I need to know that you can throw me a rope and, and yeah. And then he absolutely dedicated uh, everything and, and we thankfully had a, a very successful trip. Um, but that was months of preparation. Um, and then obviously you've got the logistical side of it. Um, there's a lot of research that goes into it. We can't just turn up to a random area with no, no information whatsoever. So we gain as much as possible. Obviously, that's quite limited in places that haven't been explored before. But even if that's satellite imagery, um, any information whatsoever that you can get, and even looking at kind of gradients and stuff and trying to work out potentially what the nature of the river will be like, um, the more informed you are, kind of the easier life's going to be. And hopefully, the more straightforward things will go. And obviously, when you are running first ascents, it Part of it is that excitement of running something new and not knowing what's around the corner, uh, but trying to do it as safely as possible, obviously, because it's just you and your team. You can't just call for an ambulance or, or anything to come help you. It's it's just you guys. Um, and for that reason, I've also done quite a lot of wilderness medicine training um, so that I can hopefully help a member of the team if they become in ill or injured and just know that I've got some knowledge to try and get us out of some of those more difficult situations. You you work in the medical world anyway, don't you? You're a physiotherapy by trade, aren't you? Yeah, not, not so much at the moment, but uh, yes, yeah, so I'm a physio by <laughs> background um, and I do, I do use that um, kind of as and when I need to, that knowledge that I gain from there and Obviously, I've built on it with the wilderness medicine things as well. And that does sometimes come come in handy uh, when people get injured and, and things. You're the, the, you're, 
you're the ideal person to have on any trip because <laughs> most of it is aches and pains and this my shoulders hurting me or my side is hurting. I, like I said, well, my my last kayaking, which was nearly what was that 15 years ago i dislocated my shoulder so i was straight in with a physio straight afterwards yeah. you know but yeah. <laughs> do you on these expeditions do you ever on the new on the uh, new routing the first ascents do you first descents that was a mm-hmm. that was a climber slip there yeah. <laughs> um on the first descents do you ever reach these impasses that where you can't just you can't go through the water because it's too dangerous and you can't get around because it's it's walls and the likes and then you have to yeah. do massive portages or yeah actually uh towards the end well pretty much at the end of our Bhutan trip we hadn't to carry on a bit further down uh, but um on the last day we got to um a big constriction uh which essentially just would have been horrendous and probably not ended well um it was just too full-on and not really passable um there wasn't really a way around it at river level. So rather than continue the last kind of 10k we were going to do, we actually hiked out from where we were um, and kind of finished the expedition there. Uh, so yeah, it does sometimes happen. Um, thankfully, not very often. There's usually a way around. Um, and yeah, and quite often you can kind of work out where the biggest things will probably be and, and get out and have a look at them and then make your decision from there you have to be fit to be on these things obviously uh, yeah. <laughs> and it used to, it, and it used to be such a um a man's sport right for mm-hmm. a very long time and climbing was as well i mean the climbing now uh it's completely unrecognizable from a diversity perspective to what it was when i started 30 what am i 47 i started when i was 15 so what's that 33 two three years or something ago mm-hmm. when there were like a handful of girlfriends in climbing there were no mm-hmm. there were, i can think of one female kayaker who i knew who again was the wife of a, somebody who was happy to now it's uh, i mean there's an explosion of openings with where you have people like yourself who are world-class athletes and it doesn't matter that you're a woman you're a world-class athlete you're on the same stage as the men in the same level of them um did you did you find any kind of um barriers to entry into kayaking in that way or did you hit it at the right time Um, i think i i was lucky um i met some friends here in nottingham who were guys obviously there wasn't many girls around um and they kind of accepted me and I think they could feel kind of how motivated I was and how much I wanted to be on the river and luckily they they kind of invited me along quite often um but it's funny because obviously this comes up quite often now kind of how is it being a girl in a male dominated sport that kind of thing um and actually as time's gone on um i've actually thought back to a few situations which i thought nothing of at the time and now i think back and like actually that was like pretty crappy <laughs> like, obviously i in general i was super lucky and had loads of really supportive guy mates who just to be honest just it didn't matter that i was a girl what difference does it make as long as i can keep up and kind of show myself on the river and things and it's all good uh, that did mean i have i still now have to do quite a bit of strength training um, I'm quite small. I'm about five foot-ish. Um, no way. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you, well, fit ni- you, you fit nicely into any kayak then. Yeah. Well, they're mostly too big, but luckily Piranha do some nice small creep boats. Um, but yeah, so I 
I still have to do quite a lot of strength training to be able to keep up. Uh, but also that's part of my personality as well is I don't like to just be getting by and just managing or being the last person at the at the back kind of thing. I like to be the best I can be. And obviously you can always be better, but I if I know I've got something big coming up, I train towards it to give myself the best chance possible. And like with Steve, um, when he was stuck in that hydraulic, if I hadn't have trained pre like before, would I have been strong enough to pull him out? Because you can't really tell from the footage, but actually where he was was a really strong current going the opposite way to what I needed to pull him out. So I had to pull someone that's quite a lot heavier than me through very strong current. Um, and if I hadn't trained beforehand, especially because I just had shoulder surgery, I might not have been able to pull him out. And also what you don't see behind the scenes is lots of getting out your kayak, it, kayak, scrambling over rocks, scouting out the next bit, running back again, getting back in, sometimes having to carry all your gear around rapids if you can't paddle them. And our boats are obviously full of everything. We've got our tents, sleeping bags, food, cooking equipment. So they, they weigh kind of, when they've got all your gear in and your rescue gear, you're probably looking at kind of like 30, 35 kilograms. Uh, so that in itself, you need to be as fit and strong as you can so that when you are on the water, you're not absolutely exhausted and not able to kind of look after yourself. Um, so yeah, so lots of training involved. Um, and going back to your earlier question, there are times when I look back and realize that, oh, actually, I think I didn't get invited on that trip because of this and, and things. But to be honest, I, I think so many girls now are just not even letting that be a factor and kind of just showing themselves, like showing what they can do and just getting out there and getting out with other women as well. And it's not even like, like it shouldn't even be something that's like even a thing, like just go no. out, kayak, have fun and whatever. Like, it, yeah, it shouldn't be something that kind of holds you back at all. So I have, I have mixed views on social media, uh, as in uh, my views of social media, not my mixed yeah. views are on social media. <laughs> <laughs> just to be clear um and obviously i see the fact that it it just becomes addictive to so many people but it is also can also be a, an incredible platform in that there are more and more i mean i most of the probably most of the half the adventurers if not more of who i follow are are women whether mm. they're climbers or they're skiers or um or they're um surfers I have to admit, I don't follow any kayakers at the moment. At the moment, <laughs> no, but I at the moment until today. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I promise, I'm I'm going to follow you the moment this this podcast is over. But um, I have two I have two sons, but and but I also have a number of goddaughters. And for me, the the fact that there are so many inspirational women internationally now. So at the mm -hmm. click of a button, you can now see that there are uh, women out there who are kicking ass and uh, yeah. at the on the same level that that ability to actually see that you're not crazy as a young girl to think mm -hmm. that you could be a pro skier pro climber pro you name it whatever pro rugby player um i think that's a that's a huge positive in social media because when again when i was a climber in the you know 90s and there were one or two very good female climbers i was privileged to spend a lot of time with um with them um, you know, they would get a tiny little piece in a magazine here and there and the rest would all just be men. And it would all be white men as well. 
back then yeah. you know so we've seen I, th- I think social media has been incredible for enabling people to realize that they can actually engage from a, any people from a you know much more diverse backgrounds um uh where was i going to go next uh, so um ecological because yeah. there's that term isn't it like you can only be what you can see um, yes. and maybe yeah. seeing lots of girls out there doing various like awesome things hopefully does kind of make some girls that are looking at those thinking like oh maybe i can do that and yeah actually maybe i can step it up in my sport and you know like kind of seeing that it is possible and you don't have to just fit that old old-fashioned mold like you know like the template that everyone's supposed to fit into like yeah do your own thing make your own template <laughs> yeah and then and young women need people like you to be out there leading the charge so you know it's a big responsibility being a professional <laughs> kayaker isn't it you know socially now and i say that because t- being responsible is what i wanted to talk to you about as well quite a bit on this uh, podcast you know it's an environmental conservation based podcast yeah. mm-hmm. and i know you've created this uh, um, ocean eight challenge yeah do you want to tell us a bit about that yeah um and i was already kind of starting to try and do a little bit more environmentally i was starting to um kind of get involved in various projects and with a few environmental charities and things and just trying to explore what i could do to be doing more because i was as you said very privileged i'm fully aware of how privileged i've been that i can travel and see all these amazing places i'm not from a wealthy background but just the opportunities that i've had have put me in some like kind of once in a lifetime situations. Um, and that helped me to see actually how amazing some of our planet is and also what we're doing and and what how that's impacting it and things. Um, and then obviously the pandemic hit, um, that actually meant uh, very little kayaking for me for those two years. Um, was, was, it, was it shut down in, the UK, in the UK access? Yeah rivers were shut yeah, so obviously you couldn't travel yeah you couldn't travel for a while um i did even hear of police turning up at, at river puttins and things um so you couldn't you couldn't travel obviously but also our rivers typically run here in the winter because we need rain uh, and we had a pretty dry winter uh, so not much kayaking happened at all for those couple of years um and i've always loved swimming so that was my kind of next go-to was my running and my swimming um, and they kind of helped to keep me semi-sane during that time. Um, and I found myself kind of getting in the sea most days and it, it just kind of pulling me through really and keeping me positive and making me feel happier and healthier. Um, and my friend Nikki, who was my swim buddy, uh, our favorite spot for swimming, um, we noticed as kind of the weather got warmer um, that there was just more and more rubbish accumulating at our little private beach that we'd always swim at, uh, particularly if it had been a busy, bank holiday would turn up there'd be disposable barbecues everywhere broken glass like you know like lager cans and things um and we'd already already been talking about how much we got from the swims and how how kind of beneficial they'd been to us and then to see the beach that had kind of been given us so much start to kind of just be destroyed by other people uh just felt really wrong. So we just started kind of combining our swims with beach cleans. We'd get there 
a bit early, 10, 15 minutes before I swim and do a good beach clean. And that just became a habit, really. Um, and then we thought, well, what else could we do with this? How could we give back more um, and like repay the places that make us feel so good? Uh, and that's where we came up the Ocean 8 Challenge. And World Ocean Day is on the 8th of June. So we decided in the lead up for eight days, we'd do eight swims and eight beach cleans, all at different locations. Uh, so essentially trying to clear eight beaches worth of otherwise ocean bound rubbish, but also trying to encourage people to do whatever they can, wherever they can. Um, whether that's going out for a walk and picking up a few plastic bottles whilst you're out or going out on your bike and filling one of your bags with um, whatever you find along the way, like just getting out and doing something wherever you are and kind of giving back to the outdoors that gives you so much in the first place. And how's it going? So you've done the swims and you've done the cleanups. Is that yeah, right? yeah. So this year was our second year of the Ocean 8 Challenge. Um, and every year, more and more people are getting involved kind of either in person or remotely around the world. And we're getting lovely photos and videos of people in New Zealand and America and all over Europe kind of doing their own Ocean 8 Challenge wherever they are. And that's that's just, yeah, makes it all worth it when you see actually it's not just our eight little beaches here in the UK that are benefiting is all over the world. And that's a, a really good feeling. And, and hopefully we can keep building on that. I have a, a d disconnect from the UK. I haven't lived in the UK for nine years. And even when mm -hmm. I did live there, I spent a lot of t the time away and traveling and on climbing trips yeah. and the likes. And But um, living here in Bali, which is my favorite place I've ever lived in my life, mostly because of the Balinese people and the Balinese mm -hmm. culture, but um, the, the, you'll hear two complaints when people come here. Actually, you'll hear three. You'll, you'll hear um, complaints about Australians as well. But uh, oh. that's, a, that, that's a running joke. Um, <laughs> you, but the other two complaints, and sorry to my Australian listeners, because I do know from the data and the back end, we have quite a few. That was a joke. Uh, the Please other two is... <laughs> yeah, I've lost them all now. The... Um, uh, the, um, the garbage and the pollution here the air pollution are the two big problems so most of the tourism here in bali is is condensed in a quite small area and so you get all of the traffic uh backups and really bad pollution and that's going to be fixed there's plans to create electric vehicles and a transit system and that's all underway mm. really exciting times to be here but the other one is the is the ocean garbage and i've talked a lot about it on previous podcasts that that we have a farm here an organic farm and we have a small stream next to it. It's about a metre wide it's, and it's part of what's called the Subak, which is the irrigation system for all the rice paddy fields. And right. it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen the Subak from an aerial shot. But when you come down close, it's absolutely full of plastic and diapers and all yeah. of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, we're only a mile from the sea on our farm. And so we're probably the last catch opportunity before it all goes out to sea. And we we do that every day we have huge we have a 14 foot garbage metal garbage trap that that mm. captures all of the garbage and we're pulling out hundreds and hundreds of pounds every week and bagging it and sending off to the recycling that's just one subak one stream out of many thousands so awesome. you know yeah it's good and we're gonna uh, and the plan is to spread that it's to scale it and we've mm. we've for the last six months we've been testing different versions of these traps because when uh, when you get flood conditions here which we get a lot certainly in rain season we just don't know if it's going to work we've we, we've only yeah. run them in dry season but my um 
So there's lots of people always complain about the garbage in Bali and the garbage on the beaches. And I have this kind of disconnect from the UK. I always think that the beaches are absolutely pristine. Because when I was a kid growing up in Bristol and going to Western Supermud for my, uh, for my you know, holidays and yeah. sometimes being lucky enough to go to Cornwall, there was no garbage on the beaches back then. Mm. They weren't, yeah. It was either not as much garbage because we're talking 40 years ago or it just wasn't being put into the rivers. How, how bad is the problem in the, in the UK on the, on the beaches? Yeah, it, it really varies, to be honest. And obviously you've got those kind of tourism kind of little catchments where everyone heads to for their summer holidays. Um, and we tend to do majority of our Ocean 8 challenge over in Cornwall, because obviously we know that's where a lot of tourists go and that's where kind of is quite heavily populated through the summer months. Um, and we, we find a, a real variation and we try every day to be on different beaches. Um, and interestingly, even over the last couple of years, we've seen some really big improvements, not only in the amount of litter that's being um, left behind, but also just the local kind of council's involvement and their, how proactive they're being at trying to help this problem. Um, we're seeing kind of council workers come and clear rubbish in the mornings. We're seeing more bins. Uh, we're seeing more awareness around. We're seeing even kind of litter pickers being pr provided and lots of local groups and communities coming out and doing litter cleans and, and beach clear-ups and things, which is really great to see. And it, it, what I found interesting the first year of Ocean 8 Challenge was we expected the two main tourist beaches in, Corn in Falmouth uh, to be the worst. And although we did find a fair bit, it wasn't anywhere near what I thought it would be because the council were already working hard. They were sending out workers twice a day in the morning and the afternoon to come and clear rubbish and they'd put all new bins on the outskirts of the beach, making it easier for people to dispose of their rubbish and not be lazy and leave it behind. Um, but what we did find was lots of teeny tiny things, so lots and lots of cigarette butts. Um, and people didn't even like see it as littering, leaving their cigarette butts. Um, but then we'd go to some beaches where we'd, we'd think, well, we won't find anything here. It's a really secluded beach. It's a bit of a walk away. Um, barely anyone's around. Um, but then we'd find that lots of things have washed up from other beaches. Um, so we did end up finding quite a lot there. And it was quite a, a trek with all these buckets and bags of rubbish trying to get that out. Um, and then one beach, we uh, the actual beach was great. However, like you were saying with your system just there, um, there was a little stream, inland stream coming in just to the edge of the beach and then out to sea. And that was absolutely full of teeny tiny pieces of plastic. Um, we couldn't work out what it was to start with because it was all the same um, kind of shape, colour, texture. Um, and then we were informed that they thought it was from a local construction site and it was just streaming in. And it was really sad to see because we spent a good couple of hours just grabbing it as it came, trying to filter it. Um, and it felt really bad to walk away from that, knowing that it would continue. Um, I have spoken to kind of uh, local groups since and there are, are kind of plans going in place with the construction site and things. So hopefully that is cleared up. But yeah, it just really opened my eyes up to it's not all just plastic bottles that like you've got to look a bit closer and even get on hands and knees looking through the seaweed and things because that's where you'll find probably lots of, well, not lots, but on some beaches, that's where we found lots of uh, fishing wire and things. So you do have to look a bit closer 
um, it's not all can, as obvious as you think it will be. No, I can regularly be found on my hands and knees on our farm because we took it over from a, it was rice paddy fields before and mm. nobody, nobody picks up garbage here really the locals because they just don't have that kind of relationship with it they don't see that it's bad quite yet because garbage until 40 50 years ago was all organic everything that the local people here in bali used was made from banana skins or from bamboo or from the same whilst i was in ecuador actually kind of kids were just throwing wrappers on the floor and we'll say why are you doing that and then the adults kind of explained to us well it was always in before that it was the skin of fruit and and thing and then it was okay to throw it on the floor and that kind of cultural change hasn't although the the types of food they're eating has changed the the kind of cultural habits haven't changed with it yet they're still a bit behind it's exactly that yeah the the traditionally here you would throw your household waste into the subak stream at the back of the house mm. and it would just carry it away out to the ocean and that would have been fine because the waste would have been banana leaves and rice and food some food yeah. scraps and coconut based items and and the likes and of course um yeah traditionally that would have been the, what you do every day but now with so much plastic and the big issue here is that because people can't really afford to buy big tubs or big bottles of something they buy these tiny little sachets and so yeah. you're, you're you know you've got bazillions of these tiny little sachet packets that we collect every day um, and uh, as I said, even on our land now, which we're restoring and we've been putting microbes in and composting and every single day, our team probably spend a couple of hours still going through the soil, digging when they dig new soil, there's layers and layers and layers of plastic, you know, so because it's been flooded and it's come in through, you know, the last 20 odd years. Um, you mentioned Ecuador where, so you've obviously kayaked and adventured in a lot of different countries. Yeah. And um, I, to be honest, Ecuador is kind of my second home. That's where I oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, I go next week, actually. Oh, um, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, that, that's where I spend the majority of my time, to be honest. And that's been something that's been really nice there, that I work with kind of um, local communities and groups and things, trying to make positive change. Because like we said, some areas are just a bit behind and, and it's about education, but also... Um, playing on what because I for for a long time I knew I needed to do more but I didn't know what to do like I I completely admit I'm not a scientist I'm not an expert and when I first started trying to do more I just found it super overwhelming and thought well what's the point because I'll never be perfect I'll never know everything uh I'll always be doing something that's not good enough um and in the end I now just do it super simple um I know that I I can teach kayaking, I can get people to fall in love with the river, I can help people to discover how awesome it is to be able to swim in your local rivers and the sea and I can help people to fall in love with these areas and generally you want to protect what you love. Uh, So in Ecuador for instance, um, fairly recently uh, the first Ecuadorian um, kayak club has been created and now there's all these local people, kids and adults, who never would have ever even thought about um, kayaking and protecting the rivers that are now out there kind of marching the streets and protesting against mining and and all sorts of things. And it's just incredible. Um, I've kind of been witness to this over the last couple of years and and trying to play my part in it as well. And the first march that um, we saw, there were about 30 people. The most recent one, which I 
attended in, I think that was January, there was, I think, 400 people. Uh, so you can see that just that awareness and the education and things are improving and just more people caring, more people wanting to protect these areas and the jungle and the Amazon for the future generations, rather than just thinking of the now. Um, and yeah, I think that's super important. And yeah, you, you'll never be an expert on everything, but just do what you can do. And for me, just keeping it simple is kind of the best way. Um, yeah, and that's, that's I, kind of I, how I, I to work. <laughs> I, I see how, as a rock climber, much of my passion and love of the outdoors has been formed by being in these wild places and mm. having that direct interaction. Uh, for me, there's yeah, nothing there's nothing better than being at the end of the day when the sun's going down and I've got an hour and I'm just topping out on a crag and the wind's blowing and I you know and you look around and there's no one around and you just have a you have a deeper connection and deeper sense of yeah, of the importance of the natural world exactly and and um uh, probably kayaking probably takes you deeper into the wilderness than any other sport maybe apart from paragliding or, or similar because you're traveling the whole time yeah and, in, and it, it and takes in, you to places that you wouldn't be able to access other than via the river yeah um, and by traveling i mean you're traveling down the river the whole time yeah. right you're always moving deeper and deeper and deeper potentially into the wilderness mm. i've done some four or five day uh, rafting trips just with my family i don't like being guided because i sort of mm -hmm. have this slight arrogance about my place in the outdoor world i like the adventure you know um, mm -hmm. but we've done these, we've done these trips down the Colorado river and the green river and, um, and spent three or four days without seeing any other people. And when you, uh, for me, I sort of live vicariously through my kids in many ways. And when you see the, the kind of awe that comes through, oh, a bit close, the awe that comes through on their faces, when they realize that they are tens of miles from anywhere and it is just the natural world and there's vultures flying over and there's kingfishers on the river and there's potential you know we might see otters and we and all of this stuff and um my kids without ever having to be told about the importance of nature they are nature files they love you know they they want to protect they want to know how they can help they want to and and i'm not a, the type of parent who rams anything down their kids throats and it's purely because of these experiences so you developing a kayaking club and getting people out there, I think is, uh, and like you say, you sort of stay in your own lane, you do what you're, you're, you're good at. But I, I definitely think it, can't take credit for creating the club. I've ah, okay, okay. I, I, I made the assumption there. Very much the, uh, the local, uh, so there's a couple of people in particular who have worked endlessly hard to get going. I just, I come in, I, I help and I, I kind of play my role, but I definitely can't, can't take credit for creating it. <laughs> but was there much kayaking in, in the area in in Ecuador before you got there? I mean, were you the first to kayak just, there? Or? There was, um, so when I first went to Ecuador, there was quite a few international paddlers traveling there, um, but not really any local ones or maybe one or two locals, but not really. It was kind of the more privileged international people turning up, enjoying the rivers, going kayaking, then leaving again and not really contributing at all, if that makes sense, like kind of taking advantage mm. a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, whereas now, like they're just every year I'm seeing more and more kayakers there and just integrating a lot, lot better. And lots of uh, paddlers when they leave are now donating their kit and their boats and things to local paddlers, to the club. Uh, the club is all based on on kind of 
donations and gifts and things from international paddlers um, and that's been to build the local paddling communities um, and yeah and now there's loads of really good paddlers in Ecuador like some amazing up-and-coming paddlers and they've started doing race series and and competitions and things that they're still having struggles uh being allowed to represent internationally and things but they're pushing for it and they're working really hard to make it more established there but it's really nice to see it growing locally and more international visitors actually getting involved and contributing and being more integrated rather than just coming having a nice time and leaving again i've never been to ecuador but uh, i've always wanted to go to the galapagos and obviously that's the stepping off point isn't it you fly into ecuador to go to the galapagos i think which obviously is one of the most incredibly diverse marine reserves and even on the island on the land of the islands themselves mm. but but ecuador um is is it a is it similar to costa rica and that they have a quite progressively conservation minded government there or are they logging and and careful what, careful what you say because you'll be going back yeah yeah i'd say it's a bit behind um because it's typically been um kind of a poverty-stricken country in a lot of areas um there's from just my knowledge like I, I again i'm not an expert but just from my experience and what i've learned and what i kind of gained knowledge about from local friends there and just from spending lots of time there it feels a bit like they're driven by, like the government are driven by what will make the money today. Mm. So uh, letting these big companies in uh, to to mine local, like jungle, they'll do because they're, they're getting a nice payout from it. And obviously when you are kind of, when finances are a big problem, that that's how you have to be. Um, but trying to help local people and, and communities and things to, plan for the future and how to invest in now and how and like for instance with the the kayak club and things um the people that are running that have actually put lots of local uh, teenagers and people in their 20s through certifications and training and qualifications and things so that they can work on the river with tourists and like you said rafting lots of them are now raft guides and earn a living from the river and lots of people that are now earning their li- their livelihood from the river which will make them want to protect it and protect it for the future um and yeah and so i think things are improving uh, but it's a, a bit behind i think still it's a it's the age-old challenge of you've got to feed people and you if mm. you're in government you can't have a revolution on your hands because the economy is completely collapsed whilst also playing this long game of making sure that there is actually a an environment that's that you can live in for future generations um obviously in latin america and even in a lot of southeast asia there's a lot of corruption in governments and the like so you've got you're facing that at all times like logging rights being sold off and oil and gas exploration rights and all of that but um i am continuously uh, surprised by how the 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 small groups of people can create like you said 400 people in a um you know in a rally or or a demonstration for the cleanliness of the river these things actually do have a start to have a, a really big impact yeah, and especially the with, government have to start listening uh, when it's only 30 people or, or even less then it's easy for the government to ignore and just carry on as they were but as soon as these numbers start building 
then you kind of can't ignore it anymore and you have to be shown to be putting something in place and making some changes and, and planning for the future. So although it's not quite there yet, things are moving in the right direction. Um, and hopefully we'll start to see some bigger changes over there. It's another benefit of social media, which is that yeah. you know, of those 400 people walking, all of them have probably 10 or 50 or 100 or 500 followers that they can share yeah. a message and to. As soon as word got out, kind of local uh, news presenters and crews were coming out and filming and interviewing. So obviously then it's on Ecuadorian television. And yeah, it, there, there's some good things going on. Uh, still a long way to go, but there's a lot of good people really leading the charge. So hopefully they'll be listened to. I'm uh, I'm loath to ask you this next question, and I've only got a couple more questions because I know your time is precious. <laughs> but um, uh, and I'm loath to ask it because I read an interview with you earlier, and somebody had asked you what you were working on or your plans for the future, and you said I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. Um, so. <laughs> 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 but 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 what are you uh what what are the current projects that you've got on your plate are there any more big adventures uh planned to remote areas yeah like adventures for me um so i i go to ecuador next week and i am going to be teaching kayaking in both ecuador and chile over with winter um so showing my love of kayaking getting people out on some adventures showing them these amazing places um and and yeah so that that's kind of how the next few few months look for me um out on rivers having a good time and hopefully helping other people to have a good time and and kind of realize these amazing places that we need to look after uh, where, where are you going in chile are you going anywhere near patagonia uh no i'd be further north yeah um, so on the ecuadorian near further closer to ecuador yeah, yeah, kind of um, going to be moving around. It's a bit of a road trip, but um, mostly around kind of uh, the Rio Claro kind of area and then Pucon. Pucon's quite well known. That's more of a, a kind of tourist kind of hub, uh, but a lot of good whitewater kayaking around there. Um, and then depending on time, it'd be great if I could head a bit further south to the Futilafu, which is a pretty uh, famous river amongst uh, whitewater kayakers and a bit of a paradise down there. So. Yeah, we'll see how we get on, but um, that would be the ideal plan. And where do you document all of these adventures? So you're on Instagram, obviously, because I've you've told me off for not following you inadvertently. Oh, not uh, at all. I, <laughs> I don't think I did. <laughs> oh, I thought that was the subtext of saying that I should be following a female kayaker. Um, where, well, so, female kayakers in general. <laughs> just in general. Are there many female kayakers uh, uh, going on? big adventures i mean i say that yeah, not as somebody yeah. asking about females but i don't i don't follow kayaking so i wouldn't know yeah yeah uh, well um it's funny because i not like a few years ago didn't think there was many female kayakers and then i left the uk and started traveling and realized that there's loads of female kayakers out there there just wasn't many where i was at the time um and on my travels i've met loads of awesome amazing women who are now some of some of my best friends and my some of my best paddling buddies, um, who are proper charging, and that's obviously really influ like inspiring for me as well. Like we push each other, um, and then now that I come back to the UK, I'm seeing more and more women here. Uh, so maybe that's a knock-on effect of more and more women being on social media and getting out there and showing showing that it's possible. Um, but yeah, in general, I'd say it's really growing, and there's loads of women out there now. Uh, maybe they were always there we just didn't get to see them that often I think 
I think I read that one of the, the, I won't name it, but one of the main kayaking magazines only had a female on the front cover for the first time last year, I think it was. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. so... It, they need to Every, up. It's just all a bit behind. Like they need to catch up, don't they? Hear about them. And I, I did a, an interview. It was a little while ago now, but I remember her saying, like the interview person saying, um, "You're the first female we've had on this podcast. Um, why do you think there's such a lack of female adventurers?" And I said, "Well, there's not. You just haven't interviewed them." <laughs> yeah. out there. There are a multitude out there. Yeah, yeah. look, the, the the outdoor sports world definitely has, um, I mean, I think in climbing it's certainly uh, caught up. Um, but mm. the 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 old school view of kind of hairy-assed men, um, you know, who, who like to go to the pub after they've risked their life on their big adventures, that's, uh, it should be long dead and gone. Uh, I don't think it is necessarily, it's, especially in the UK. There are still some sort of, of those old school type um uh cliques but the uh, again i think it's just the the more inspirational women that come across our um uh our view and uh change our perspective the more it's going to just keep snowballing yeah and it's what you surround yourself by isn't it like you were mentioning those guys i don't know anyone like that maybe that's because i've not i i could introduce you to a few if you want definitely <laughs> But like it's huge, it's like it, if you surround yourself by people that inspire you and are kind of super motivated and passionate, then obviously that's going to influence you and who you follow on social media kind of thing. Like your crowd, you choose your crowd, don't you? And you choose who to look up to and who to follow and things. Um, and yeah, and I think more and more people are, are kind of choosing to follow, like you were saying, people from different backgrounds. And so like it's things are shifting, aren't they? And they've needed to shift for a long time. Uh, and finally, it's perhaps a bit slower than it needs to be, but things are changing. And I don't just mean for women, obviously. I mean all kind of backgrounds and diversities and things. But yeah, Some, something some, right directions. <laughs> something just popped to mind actually as you were talking. Then um, uh, that I was reading as um, obviously the Queen died, and, uh, and I don't know if you know that. You probably do. Um, yeah, a few people know that. Um, but, the, <laughs> but but there was an anecdote um, apparently that when the the king of Saudi Arabia came to um, uh, what's their Scot uh, Balmoral and mm -hmm. stayed there for I don't know how long, but she insisted on driving him in the Land Rover herself around the property every time they moved anywhere. She insisted on driving uh, okay, right. because at the time women were banned from driving in Saudi Arabia, uh, of course. Okay. Yeah. And I just, I just thought that was an absolutely marvelous uh, <laughs> backhanded slap while still being respectful to you know, yeah. your guests who are the Saudi royals. I thought that was brilliant. Um, Star, where can we find you on Instagram, on social media? You're on Instagram, right? Yeah, yeah. Instagram is Sal, S-A-L dot Montgomery, which is M-O-N-T-G-O-M-E-R-Y. Um, and I've got a YouTube channel, which I'm gradually starting to put more and more on. I've been a bit lazy with that, but getting there now. Um, and yeah, they're my main things that I use really. Um, and so you're not, your handle's not Mighty Monty. No. <laughs> Cause I saw you call, I saw you called that in an interview. I didn't know if that was your, your kayaking nickname or your handle no, or I something. That was just the, uh, the that magazine. was a one-off. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> no, I saw that <laughs> There's, I thought there might be a story behind it or something, but no. All right. No, a few, few 
few of my friends call me Monty, uh, but no, luckily that's not Mighty Monty. Isn't something that's caught on. Well, I'll I'll put I'll put the well or we'll put the uh, uh, your Instagram and your YouTube in the oh, show notes um, and links to all the different videos and things that I've watched and um, and I do I do encourage listeners to actually watch some of those videos because they're absolutely inspiring. Um, oh, so I'll keep on cranking. If you ever find yourself floating by Bali, you're welcome to come and visit yeah, any anytime there's actually some really good rafting up in the mountains um i think it might oh, be a yeah. bit tight for kayaking you need a bit of well i certainly need a bit of insulation between me and the rocks but uh there's some amazing rivers in bali and i suspect oh, that cool. there's some opportunity to come and do some first ascent so if you want any ground support and um uh, yeah, and mapping yeah. and any info you've got send it over absolutely to explore somewhere new we're trying to encourage as many sort of um, adventurous but uh, environmentally supportive and um, appreciative activities as possible here, uh, mm -hmm. rather than yeah. rather than those Australians just coming on package holidays and getting drunk. You know? So I had to get that one in. And then you just lost all your Australians. <laughs> there weren't that many. I think it was about thirty or something. So we'll be all right. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's thank been a real you. pleasure speaking to you. Uh, it's an inspiration, and um, oh, we'll. Hope to see you on a river soon. I'll be fishing. Yes, you you'll, be, you'll be floating by. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> awesome. Have a nice day. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Out. Bye.